This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Hello and welcome back to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters from Bobsled Marketing. Happy New Year to you. We are recording this at the tail end of December, but the show is going live early in January. And I've got a a friend of the show, Russ Derringer, back again with us. Russ is the founder of Stratably, a company dedicated to elevating the digital IQ of leading consumer brands. Each week, Ross creates impactful, practical, and easy-to-digest research that speaks to all layers of an organization, helping them to see further around the corner of what's coming in retail. Welcome back, Ross. Thanks, Kiri. Glad to be back. Yeah, so we're doing a predictions episode. I've got a few things that I've been thinking about, and I know that this is this is something that you spend a lot of time on, Ross, as well. So let's jump right in. Let's do it. And I love having to plant a flag in the ground and we'll get to measure how smart we were, how correct we were in our predictions 12 months from now. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I've been listening to a lot of predictions podcast episodes recently and the comment is always made that you can really parade around <laughs> if you get the prediction right. And if if not, you just don't say anything at all. It's just sweep it under the rug. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I won't be trying to predict inflation nor COVID-19 cases. So we'll just, we know that stuff's unpredictable, but we'll try to gravitate towards what uh, we're most expert in. Yeah. Yep. Sounds good. All right. Well, I'll jump in first. So one of my big predictions for next year is that there'll be giant clearance sales in the middle of next year, which will arrive at because of this Shippergeddon supply chain snarl that's been unfolding over the last couple of years. So I think I could be wrong on the exact timing here, but somewhere around mid-2022, mid to late 2022 perhaps, we'll have a lot of the supply chain kinks worked through. It's going to take a while to work through it, but eventually it will happen. And what we've seen at Bobsled and just in my discussions with other brands is that just like shoppers lining up in supermarkets, panic buying toilet paper. Brands have also engaged in some panic buying of their own and, and over-ordering inventory in some cases, and eventually that's going to catch up. The inventory will arrive, there'll be too much of it, there will be seasonal inventory that's finally available just at the wrong time of the year. And so depending on the timing of when this all sort of unfolds, there will need to be huge sort of clearances by these brands. It could happen right around Prime Day in the middle of the year in summer. And I think it will be a pretty welcome reprieve from overall cost inflation that we're, we're seeing across the board as well. What do you make of that, Russ? I think you're onto something. You know, when I've talked to certain leaders inside of like general merchandise type categories, you know, they've expressed this concern kind of throughout the fourth quarter, like they're dealing with all these supply chain issues that we're all well aware of. But they're they're worried that, you know, one if the if the product, you know, certainly if the product doesn't get there in time for the holidays, it's setting up for, you know, a very big and problematic correction. 
So I know some of those listening will, you know, feel like that's a risk, but I have a question for you with this prediction, Kiri, in your mind, does this require any type of slowdown in the consumer? Like, is that part of your prediction? Or do you think that even if the consumer demand remains high, that you still see this ship again ending in the middle of the year? It's a really good question. I think of them as somewhat separate. Just if you're overstocked, you're overstocked. And I guess unless you've got the latest kind of fidget spinner or poppet phenomenon on your hands, if you're overstocked of a consumer product, you'd have to get pretty lucky in terms of consumer demand or your competitors being out of stock, for example, and you're a substitute product to see that. But yeah, it is a really good question. I guess if consumer demand remains very, very high and there's that could affect this prediction. Do you think we'll face a ship again in, in the fourth quarter of next year or in 2022, I should say? That's an interesting one. When you think about the shippers and that last mile capability, Amazon themselves have really, they've been ramping up last mile and their fulfillment capabilities across the board for years and years and initially really wanted to reduce their reliance on FedEx and UPS because they had been let down in the past. So I think that we could see if anyone is going to be able to create capacity to take the heat off, it's probably, probably Amazon. But I think we haven't seen evidence that they're able to really stand completely independently over the last two years with the issues that they've faced in their fulfillment network. Right now at Bobsled, we still have clients who have seen their inventory storage limits just have a life of their own. Amazon's got some algorithm to figure out how much storage capacity you are allocated as a merchant at Amazon. And it just seems to jump all over the place for some clients. And it's very painful, especially for brands who rely on Amazon as a major fulfillment partner. It's super unpredictable. So on one hand, (laughs) I'm kind of dodging providing an answer here, but (laughs) I really want to believe that Amazon can step in and help work through that demand, but it's still, I haven't seen enough stability on that yet to to think that'll happen in the next 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that the last two years have been incredibly challenging from a forecasting perspective and ordering perspective and production perspective that it's much more likely that there's going to be some form of correction, which you're calling for here, rather than some type of like soft, gradual easing of this. And so I would tend to, you know, agree to your point, the exact timing is a little bit challenging, but I think in 2022, you know, we probably will see, you know, this type of correction, and then we'll just have to get into the fourth quarter next year and kind of see where the consumer's at and see, you know, to determine if we're going to see the same type of challenges that we've seen in 2020 and 2021. So I would tend to tend to agree with your prediction, prediction number one here. All right, great. What about you? Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, you know, an area that I've been doing more research on is technology experience at sort of the top of organizations. And so my prediction is that we're going to see 
a remaking of publicly traded CPG boards into stronger digital professionals being placed on those boards. And so I can unpack that a little bit. Over the last couple of years with the rise of digital penetration from COVID, you've seen more and more retailers disclose digital metrics like growth or penetration. And now you're starting to see CPG companies do the same thing, whether it's Nestle hosting an investor day, Campbell's reports there, some of their digital metrics, P&G, Colgate, et cetera, all of these big publicly traded CPG companies are doing that. So they're starting to disclose more digital metrics. Firm value is increasingly being driven by digital cash flows and the digital kind of strengths of these organizations versus their competitors. And that is setting up underperformers for greater attention from activist investors. And when I, in my research, I'm looking at, in looking at the board of directors for these companies, strong technology experience is generally uh, lacking. So to give you an example in the data, typically boards have around 12 people on a board on average. And I looked across 30 different CPG companies on an, on average, only one out of 12 of those individuals would you describe as having like a strong technology digital background. And I was even kind of generous. Like if it was on the fence, I sort of just said, okay, that, that counts. So only one out of 12, you think about, you know, Amazon's board is almost entirely comprised of strong technology experience, a company like Nike, which is, you know, always cited as a leader in sort of like digital forward thinking business. They have about a third of their board is and has strong technology experience, but these CPG boards are sort of lacking that. And a large percentage of them have no technology experience whatsoever. And I think that's problematic because these firms need to craft a digital narrative, but it's going to be challenging to do so if there's no one really at the top of the organization that really can drive that and really hold senior leadership teams accountable. And I think it's going to become increasingly just kind of a table stakes type thing. And so I think we're going to see CPG boards take an active role in adding more technology experience and capabilities to that board of directors. And so from a, like a pure prediction standpoint, like how could we measure this a year from now, if the average is one out of 12 today, I think we could get to two out of 12. So a doubling of that. Now it takes time, right? Because boards don't turn over every year. And, you know, so there's some mechanics around that. But I think the big picture is how do companies craft that digital narrative? How do they get more kind of technology oriented thinking to drive the future value and the future direction and future vision of their companies. I think that's going to be a big element of 2022 and it's impacted retailers, I would say first. And now I think we're going to see that happen more on the brand side of things. Hey everyone, Kiri here. I just wanted to let you know about some proprietary new research that we're releasing at Bobsled Marketing on January 27 called the Amazon Maturity Matrix. This is a study that we've done looking at 100 brands that we work with at Bobsled Marketing and drawing from our experience of nearly seven years of managing brands on Amazon and learning about when clients are sort of mature in their thinking and approach towards Amazon, which generally means that we can execute much faster and achieve 
superior results for those clients. So we did some analysis and found some really interesting things that we're going to be sharing on January 27 via a webinar and a subsequent report. So a snapshot of what you'll learn from the Amazon Maturity Matrix. There's the matrix that defines all stages of Amazon Maturity for retail brands. Learn what your brand's Amazon power animal might be and what changes are required to be more successful on Amazon in that framework. The six approaches and mindsets that Amazon mature brands have. A new framework for identifying meaningful Amazon KPIs and eight ways to educate your internal team about the Amazon imperative and create change from within. So join us for this webinar and report the Amazon Maturity Matrix. You can find it on the website at bobsledmarketing.com. Yeah, this would be big news for the digital shelf analytics companies as well. And so my, my question for you is what types of met when you say that these incumbent brands are all starting to disclose more digital metrics. What kind of metrics are you seeing as the most common metrics? Because that's been something I've noticed is not really uniform metric yeah. to look at, like GMV, for example. There's not really yes. a digital equivalent. Yes, it's a real issue right now. So to answer your question, I'm seeing most commonly digital penetration and then year over year e-commerce growth. So like Nestle had an investor day, they said, we want to get to 25% digital penetration by 2025. As an example, I think they were at 12%. Don't quote me on that, but they wanted to get to 25%. But in talking with others in the space, it is really challenging to, to understand where they're at even today, because the Yep. Data and analytics firms, there's no one that's putting together all of the information. It's very challenging to put together the whole picture. Yes. And so quarter to quarter, you can end up using different inputs. And then, yes. but if you're reporting to the street and you've got these different inputs, you know, it just becomes very, very challenging. So I actually think there's a big opportunity for service providers in the space to help companies do that. And there's a lot working on it. It's just a, it's just a really challenging sort of question to answer. So they want to disclose these metrics more, but it is challenging to do so. Yeah. And even how do you measure like digital penetration? There's so much fuzziness around how you measure these kinds of things, which is why it's so hard and why there's no one true source for this information. This complaint from brands all the time is that we can't really track like for like apples to apples across different channels. And part of The problem is that we've got digitally influenced sales, right? And sales that happen in stores because someone had a digital interaction and vice versa as well. Someone is showrooming in a store and completes the transaction online. And there's this inherent sort of, yeah, it's such a difficult thing to build a framework around measuring this. So. Absolutely. And and even with marketplaces, if you're selling into channels and then they're turning around and selling on a marketplace, how does that, like, where does that fit into that penetration number? So it's very challenging to measure. So maybe that's a a prediction, a sub prediction within this is we're going to see progress on the service provider front, helping companies, you know, better estimate and, and understand that. We'll see. Yeah. Is that a prediction or a wish list? 
That might be a wish list. Yeah, <laughs> that's too. more of a wish list. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Agreed there. So my second prediction is that Chinese sellers and manufacturers will reach new levels of sophistication selling on marketplaces like Amazon. So a little bit of backstory. This year in 2021, or last year if we're talking in January, a number of very high-profile brands were suspended from Amazon because of sort of grey area or unallowed promotion tactics like sourcing fake reviews and things like that. So there was a few big-name electronics brands, but overall there was hundreds of Chinese merchants banned for breaching terms of service. And overall there's been, over the last two years during the pandemic, the percentage of sales on Amazon attributed to Chinese sellers has slowed down. It's still growing, but it's slowed down quite a bit, and that could be due to supply chain. And then also the theory is that these big sellers who were wiped off the platform, that also sort of contributed to that GMV going down. But what we're seeing and what I think that we're going to see more of in the future is more sophistication from these manufacturers in terms of coloring within the lines and staying within the rules and being a little bit more savvy about compliance. And then I think we're also going to see a real leveling up of the quality of product content and the branding and the overall sort of marketing look and feel of these products, which will put some real pressure on US brands who might be using those same suppliers and there's really no differentiation in their product. And if the Chinese manufacturers can add a little bit more polish to their product listings and present a little bit more professionally, then that's what is the reason to exist for that intermediary brand who is selling the exact same product. So I think that that's going to be a real challenge in the market and brands are going to really need to understand what their differentiation is, what their value prop is, because there'll be less to the naked eye, there'll be less and less of a a difference between different sellers in that way. Yeah. You know, if you're just relying on the same manufacturer and, and you're sort of stuck in the middle, you don't have a, you know, you have an okay brand, but it's not a great brand. And suddenly there's, you know, 10 very similar products showing up and marketplaces have reduced these barriers to entry to essentially nothing. It's not a great place to be. Right. Right. And, and Amazon loves this, by the way, as well. They love what sure. the manufacturers are coming in direct because they're offering lower prices and that keeps customers coming back. And so it's, yeah, you don't have a friend in Amazon here. Yeah. No, and not only does Amazon love it, but I'd say consumers love it. And yeah. I think that what Amazon has shown is like, what is a brand online, right? And if it, <laughs> if you can optimize to the algorithm and put up some pictures and it looks very similar and there's you know a bunch of reviews, which I guess that's kind of where some of these manufacturers ran into trouble is that the reviews weren't genuine. But if they can get to a model where they are genuine and they can operate, consumers love it. They don't really care, you know? And and so I think it's calling into question the whole nature of what a brand really is. And if you're, again, stuck in the middle, it's, it's not a great place to be. And, you know, I would add to your prediction or maybe question is, you know, maybe they're, maybe these manufacturers also branch out and get good on other, you know, platforms like social commerce as an example and TikTok or, Maybe they 
venture into the realm of Shopify as well, and they get good at customer acquisition on on social channels in addition to being great on Amazon. I guess this year for them, you know, they were just so exposed to Amazon, you know, many of them, you know, shut down after they got kicked out. Yeah. And so maybe there's a diversification element to their strategy as well next year. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think from what I've read, that sort of those band sellers, the news of the band sellers really sent shockwaves through the Chinese selling community. And yeah, Amazon was absolutely doing it to make an example and ensure that sellers knew that they were doing something about it, made it very visible, made it very painful. So that really sent a strong message. I've read a really great, I'll link up to it in the show notes, read a really interesting article from this publication called Rest of World about the shopping app, I guess you'd call it Shein, which is just an absolute beast in terms of using data to create fast fashion and linking up their data that shows what's trending on TikTok, what's trending on Instagram, and then sort of allowing this network of factories to produce those garments very quickly. And they're not even taking cues from fashion shows in Paris. It's just coming directly from social media and being created at warp speed, really. So I think that there is, in reverse, a lot that the Western world can and should learn from China as well about harnessing consumer trends and staying on the pulse and turning things around quickly like that. Absolutely. And I read that article and and that business is fascinating to learn about. And when I first read about them, I thought, wow, like they're doing such a phenomenal job with social listening. And that is true. But when I read that rest of world article, what struck me is like, not only are they doing social listening in terms of like what's happening out there, but they're cultivating it by planting seeds. So they'll do like a real short run of a, you know, a piece of apparel and then see like, does this take off or not? Like they're rapidly testing and iterating and then using social channels to determine like the feedback, like that's the feedback loop. So they're like actively cultivating this the, the social commentary and then listening really well. It's just a fascinating model and, you know, might portend the future in other categories. Right now it's all apparel, primarily women's apparel, but really an interesting business. Definitely. Well, we're taking our sweet time with these predictions, Ross. We might need a, to... <laughs> to speed it up a little bit we might only be able to do one more one more each so what have you got next on your list well you get me going and then I get real passionate about this (laughs) stuff so I start talking so okay so okay I'll go quicker so my prediction number two is that rapid delivery is going to expand to general merchandise categories so nearly all of the sort of activity, fundraising, innovation in this space has been centered around the grocery category, what's been called instant grocery, rapid grocery delivery. Essentially, it's this movement towards delivering groceries in sub 30 minutes, sub 15 minutes, even sub 10 minutes, whether it's, you know, GoPuff is a pioneer in the space, but then we had a lot of companies enter the the New York City market. They've expanded to Chicago and Boston since then. I think that this is not a grocery only theme. Fast delivery speed is something that consumers definitely value. And then because of that, 
companies can invest behind that. They can feel confident that if they invest in delivery speed, that there's going to be a payback because whether or not you need anything that quickly is sort of beside the point. If, if, if you can have it in 15 minutes, you're going to want it in 15 minutes. And so I think we're going to see that model expand beyond grocery this year. Platforms like DoorDash, Instacart, Uber, even, even now Lyft, certainly Amazon are all going to increasingly work towards delivering in sub 30 minutes, essentially every category. They have the flexibility with their platform to do that. They need growth. They have the ambition to do it. And so I think what was primarily a grocery story in 2021 is going to become an e-commerce story in 2022. And 12 months from now, we could judge that based on looking at the retailers that those platforms launch with, like a DoorDash as an example. Do they start you know, working with Dick Sporting Goods or something on sub 30 minute delivery. We can also monitor Amazon's ability right now. They have enormous assortment capable of being delivered in five hours or less. Does that five hours turn into four, turn into three, turn into sub one hour, et cetera. So that's something I think is going to impact the broader market in 2022. I know that Instacart at least has offered assortment from Best Buy and CBS, like the, they've been doing this for a, a while. So do you think that that's been, that's been a lower, a, a smaller part of their use case to consumers or that was just the start of it? I think it's just getting started and I'm not sure on the best buy, like the delivery time, but I do think there is a difference between two hours and 30 minutes or 15 minutes. And so I think that's the core thing in the prediction is, is that we're going to start to see some of these items be delivered in 15 minutes, you know, an order from Best Buy, as an example, or an order from JCPenney, you know, DoorDash just signed up JCPenney. So that's kind of what I'm thinking is going to happen. So in that case, I just have one question. What about profitability? <laughs> hey, <laughs> I'm not here to solve that one because <laughs> that's a real issue and no one has really solved that yet. There isn't a clear model, you know, at this point where profitability is achievable. But what is interesting is like GoPuff has talked about their model in mature markets as being quote unquote profitable. Now they might be doing some adjustments on that profit number, but the nature of the dark store micro fulfillment center close to the consumer, et cetera, that it does kind of change the economics a little bit differently. They're not automated centers, which is counterintuitively sort of like helping the profitability. And a lot of what's killing the instant grocers is customer acquisition costs, which is just crushing their profitability. And so like that has not been solved and I don't pretend to have the answer to it, but the lack of profitability has just been a story of e-commerce forever. And I think that, I don't think this is going to help it. I think it will probably push out the profitability potential by a few years further. 100%. Yeah. I see these players coming into the space and there's so many of them and they're, you know, very competitive with each other. I guess one thing is we're not going to go back to something that's less convenient. Actually, let me correct that thought. Prior to COVID really kicking off, Amazon was moving very aggressively towards one day delivery across the board. And it, it, it really seemed like they wanted to create a new 
expectation amongst shoppers to expect something same day or, or next day across pretty much their whole assortment. And then when COVID hit, the consumer expectation of how quickly I should receive my order dramatically changed. And people were suddenly okay with waiting a couple or a few days for their orders. So I guess that's the one exception to when consumer expectations around convenience actually lower. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess I'm saying if, if none of these companies can actually make it profitable over the long term, shoppers are going to find it really difficult to go back to a less convenient, longer delivery time. Yes. And I think the key is like, what is the long term, you know, on that question? You know, how far away, you know, are we from that? Amazon's obviously made substantial investments into its fulfillment network over the last two years. I think they said they've doubled it as an example. And so does that scale enable them to have, you know, the greatest shot at developing a profitable model, even if it's means delivery in, you know, an hour or sub, you know, sub an hour, et cetera. So, you know, it's an interesting question. They're all dealing with it. They all know that this is the issue. So it's like a known risk, but it's an unanswered, you know, question. Yeah. Whoever can survive the longest will win. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, exactly. All right. Okay. So I'm just going to go with one more prediction for today. And that is actually related to the episode that you came on as guest last time, Russ, around Amazon FBA aggregators. And this was a really great episode. If you haven't caught that, it's on the e-commerce brain trust podcast, Amazon FBA aggregators, should retail brands be concerned? And you laid out some really good points around how the FBA aggregators are going to put pressure on incumbent brands in three main ways. One, competition, so cutting into the category, like we talked about before, manufacturers going direct to consumer through Amazon or Shopify or wherever else. That's one form of competition. And then the aggregators actually using their scale and analytics ability and all the you know, investment bankers that they've hired over the last year or so. Very, very sort of very data oriented way of looking at things. Number two challenge that they bring to the table is driving advertising costs up. So I've seen some data to suggest that the aggregators really do rely on advertising as a way to boost product rank and grow their market share. And that has really resulted in in part in the CP, the cost per click of advertising on Amazon going up. So advertising get more expensive with this sort of well-funded competition. And then finally with talent. So these aggregators and and you mentioned a stat in your report about this that there's there's a huge number of jobs that these aggregators need to fill and they're looking to brands and agencies and solution providers to lure talent away to fill these these gaps so my prediction is more pressure on incumbent brands from these aggregator brands yeah and i think a question in the aggregator space, or as we look at the aggregator ecosystem is, do we start to see green shoots in 2022 
with them crossing the chasm into brick and mortar stores. And there's the debate about this, like the brands that they're acquiring are really kind of too small for like Walmart or Target to necessarily care about. But we have seen a lot of D2C brands launch inside of big box stores this year. And so that's something that I'm looking towards. We talked about that on the podcast. We're actually now starting to hear more aggregators sort of mention brick and mortar distribution as part of their strategy, which is really interesting. So it's coming quick. And so not only is there likely to be greater pressure on incumbent brands online from aggregators, but you know there might be increasing pressure inside of stores. So that's the story that I'm going to be watching this year for 2022. Yeah, super interesting. I have spoken with at least one aggregator that said exactly that, Russ, that part of their strategy is to actually take these brands to brick and border stores and leverage leverage other platforms like Instacart and Walmart as well, because that's presumably a less crowded space for them. Absolutely. It just is, it makes logical sense. All right. Well, do you, I know that you've got two predictions left, but which one is your favorite that you want to talk about? Well, okay. This is kind of contrarian, right? But I'll go with my prediction around this emerging trend around separating digital businesses from physical businesses amongst omni-channel retailers. So Saks did this. And when Saks did this, this was so contrarian. I remember even seeing the headline. I thought, what is going on? Why would this company do this? Like the whole industry is moving towards this omni-channel, all, all one type of consumer experience, et cetera. And here's Saks that's separating their digital business from their physical business. And, you know, several months later, this, I mean, they've laughed kind of all the way to the bank. I mean, this is so far, I mean, it's early, but they've unlocked billions of dollars of value with this strategy. And so now you're seeing pressure on department store peers like Macy's and Kohl's to do the same thing. And I actually did, because it's all multiple arbitrage. These investors are saying, look, if if your digital sales were a separate business, it would be at X multiple and that that valuation would be would be double what your company's currently valued at. So you'd be silly not to separate these two things. And so that's kind of the logic behind it. And you can do the analysis. And I looked at like all these big box retailers and specialty kind of category, omni-channel retailers, et cetera. And you can see in the data, like, or using that logic, like there are opportunities to unlock a lot of value. And even, even like Walmart, now I'm not predicting Walmart does this, but using this logic, it would actually make sense for Walmart to separate its digital business from its physical business. So again, I'm not predicting Walmart's going to do this, but what I am predicting is I think we're going to see what was once a very contrarian idea of separating these, the digital business from the physical brick and mortar store business, I think we're going to see more of that in 2022. And it's not going to be necessarily because executive teams do it. It's going to be activist investors are the catalyst behind it. So not just Saks, they've already done it. Probably Macy's and Kohl's, they're actively exploring it. But who else are kind of the flagging omni-channel retailers that really need to unlock growth and value? I think they're going to be very much interested or open to exploring this concept that was, again, really contrarian a, a year ago, but is going to become more commonplace in 2022. That's that's mm. the prediction. Do you think that economics aside, this is going to improve either the shopper experience or the experience of the brands and vendors that sell to the retailers? Probably complicates 
the relationship between the brands and the retailers. So that would be a net negative, I guess. I think the consumer experience has been kind of oversold. Yeah. Like, you know, like, is there like some amazing omni-channel singular experience happening at these omni-channel retailers like that? I mean, maybe to some degree, but. There's some notable exceptions, like Sephora does a pretty good job of that. Yeah. Yeah. But they're very notable exceptions, I think. Right. Right. And so where those, you know, that those are like the exceptions almost to the rule. And so I think if Saks is sort of pioneering a way to still deliver a reasonably singular consumer experience, which is not easy to do when the businesses are together and more complicated when the businesses are separate, I don't think like suddenly the consumer experience just got a lot worse at Saks. And I don't think it'll get a lot worse at some of these others if they end up going down the same strategic path. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up Walmart because they recently went through a project to bring their in-store and online buying processes and yeah. teams together. So there's a, re- yeah, I definitely agree there's this trend happening and then you've got a pretty notable exception to this trend as well. So it'll be interesting to see who wins out. What's the best strategy there? Yeah. Yeah. And it'll probably vary by, you know, specific retailers. So we'll see. That's the prediction. I'm going out okay. on a limb on that one. Well, as a true friend, I promise to just delete this podcast episode if either of us are wrong <laughs> about anything. So <laughs> we won't bring it up. We won't bring it up 12 months from now. <laughs> None of this stuff happens. Yeah. No, this has been great. Thank you for, for taking the time to wax lyrical with me, Russ. And tell us again where people can follow your work and what Stratably is all about. Yeah. So Stratably does research on the topic of doing business with Amazon and its rivals. And it's really designed for consumer brand professionals that work in e-commerce that want a great resource to stay on top of the market, elevate their thinking, kind of challenge their thinking, and also have a objective outside resource that they can use to help educate their organization. I think that's a big challenge for e-commerce teams inside of these big companies is how do we sort of bring along the whole organization and help them understand how e-commerce and digital commerce is different and changing and what are the capabilities and initiatives that we need to invest behind in order to be relevant and in order to be a leader three years from now, five years from now, et cetera. So that's really what all my work is designed to do is to help organizations ultimately get smarter about digital commerce so that they can remain relevant and be a leader. And so you can follow my work at stratably.com. I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn, just on my personal account on LinkedIn, Russ Derringer. And that's kind of the best way to follow what I am producing for Stratably. Awesome. Well, thank you, Russ. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Thank you, Kiri. 